All right, folks, welcome back to your favorite podcast, The Africanist. I am your host, Bomba, and I'm back with uh, another special guest. Uh, his name is Noah Tamarkin, and Dr. Tamarkin is an assistant professor of anthropology and science and technology studies at Cornell University and a research associate at the WITS Institute for Social and Economic Research wiser at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. His research examines how DNA transforms power in politics as it becomes an evenly part of everyday life through technologies like ancestry testing and criminal forensics. His book entitled Genetic Afterlives, Black Jewish Indigeneity in South Africa, Duke University Press 2020, ethnographically examines the politics of race, religion, and recognition among Lemba people, Black South Africans who were part of a Jewish genetic ancestry studies in the 1980s and 1990s. Noah, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you so much, Bamba. It's wonderful to be here. Could you tell us more about the book? What is this book about? Sure. So the book is about Lemba people and about the genetic ancestry studies that they were part of. But really at its heart, it's about um, the aftermath uh, of those studies, what I'm calling genetic afterlives, um, and how Lemba people, some of whom were the ones who were part of the studies and some of whom uh, were not directly part of the studies, but are implicated because genetics implicates everyone in a group about whom it's making a claim, uh, what they do with that data. So what the book is really about then is showing how Lemba people have reframed uh, genetic ancestry data so that instead of addressing a kind of question about stable origins, and that question would be, are they really Africans or are they really Jews? That same genetic data addresses more complex stories of becoming. And so if for geneticists, uh, Lemba genetic ancestry could speak to historical migrations of Jews and stories about lost tribes of Israel, for Lemba people, their genetic ancestry could demonstrate that they were Black Jews, they were Indigenous Africans, and they were South African citizens. In the process, affirming and bolstering this expansive sense of national, regional, and diasporic belonging. Awesome. Uh, th this is a fascinating uh, book, and I'm also very fascinated with your research. And we've had you know several conversations uh, about it. Why and how? did you become interested in this particular type of research, uh, genetics and ancestry among the Lemba people in South Africa? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. You know, I think at, at core, my interests are about inheritances, marginality and belonging. And so I actually uh, didn't, you know, as, as a undergraduate student, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to um, or experience in African studies. And so I didn't know about Lemba people. I didn't, I knew kind of basics about South Africa, but not a lot. And when I started graduate school, what I was really motivated to kind of dig into was the question about Jewishness and race um, and the ambivalent ways that 
Jews are associated with race and racialized in different ways. That was kind of, and, and that was sort of part of, for me, a um, an interest in understanding the work of race and power uh, and the kind of ongoing racism and the ambivalent and uh, kind of ambiguous racializations that sometimes happen. Um, so what happened in the beginning of grad school is I, I found a New York Times article uh, about Lemba people as genetic Jews in South Africa. And, and I really wanted to understand more. Um, as soon as I kind of read this article and, and learned about this group of people out there who were part of a genetic study, what I wanted to understand was um, why did genetics appeal to them? Why did that seem to be a meaningful way to uh, say something about themselves in the world? Um, who were they trying to communicate to uh, in doing that? Um, were there, you know, different relationships to this kind of um, process, like doing genetic ancestry and making particular uh, um, claims about the self? Uh, among different Lemba people? Like, was this like a kind of uniform and unified group of people that had a particular project that was being put forward? Or was this kind of like a small group of people who were kind of um, facilitating a larger claim about an ethnic identity? So that's kind of how I got interested. And then once I went to South Africa and started to meet people, got to know some of the Lemba people who had been uh, part of the study and those who kind of were most invested in it, I just, the, you know, that for me was sort of a wider awakening into uh, African studies and some of the deeper questions and conundrums about the legacies of colonialism, uh, the kind of ongoing inequalities in the way that people engage in knowledge politics as a way to try to uh, transform their circumstances. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Now, your book, Genetic Afterlives, uh, is at the crossroads of oral history, genetics, and ethnography. How do these three elements conquer to elucidate the uh, belonging to a particular ancestry or uh, the intersection of several identities among the Lambo people? Yeah, so I was thinking that it's actually helpful, I think, first, before I talk about how oral history, genetics, and ethnography come together, I think it's helpful to think a little bit about how um, each of these works as a distinct way of knowing. So for me, mm -hmm. oral history connects people to their immediate and distant ancestors in a living and dynamic way, because mm -hmm. it's always undergoing reinterpretation and analysis in the retelling and in the hearing. And in that sense, the audience is first and foremost, the people who are unfolded in this process. So to the extent that my book could be called an oral history, mm -hmm. it's as soon as you've written an oral history, it's, it's removed from that dynamic process, right? Um, it's like a, it's like an objectification in a way. So uh, what's interesting about genetics is I think that genetics explicitly aims for that, 
that kind of objectification. Uh, so it, I think genetic genetics aims to be a distillation of evidence, um, which, you know, that can be really powerful and it potentially is also very static. But one of the arguments in this book um, that I'm making is that genetics actually isn't in fact as static as it may seem. And uh, this is, I think, where kind of oral history intersects with genetics because with these particular genetic studies, what was happening was that geneticists knew about Lemba oral history and thought it could be interesting to find out if genetics could substantiate oral history. It's a funny and a strange thing to try to test because like they're, they're kind of operating in uh, different epistemologies about what knowledge is and uh, what it's for. And so uh, for Lemba South Africans who are part of these genetic ancestry studies, mm -hmm. you know, for me, the key part is who is the audience. Um, with oral history, right, you have an audience is, is the people who are claimed by the oral history. With these genetic ancestry studies, for Lemba people who are part of them, the audience was other people. So not really Lemba people, but other people who historically had called their oral history into question. And so the goal there then was to assert their knowledge of who they were and where they came from. Now with ethnography, I feel like at its heart, ethnography is sort of profoundly a translation. And I think that oral history and genetics also has, they both also have elements of translation to them. But for me, ethnography is a, it's a storytelling that aims to be dynamic like oral history and in, informative um, for the as yet uninformed like genetics. Uh, and so there's a kind of interesting collapsing of different kinds of audiences that happens with ethnography. And I think that some degree of ethnography is probably necessary um, to make sense of oral history if that oral history is not yours, which was the case for me in, in working with Lembo people. Um, and I think that ethnography can situate genetics such that genetics claims to objectivity and singular interpretation uh, are shown to be fictions. So for me, that's how they kind of all come together. It's really interesting to see how the three, as you said, come together, especially knowing that uh, in this case, the ethnography or the oral history was confirmed uh, by the use of science and genetics, uh, to be more exact here. Uh, now, in your first chapter, you explore how the Lemba people struggle for ethnic recognition from the South African state, especially. Uh, during the apartheid era. And you also argue that because of that recognition uh, kind of justifies their desire to participate in genetic studies about their ancestry. What has genetics accomplished for them so far? Yeah, this is a really important question and it's a hard question because, well, I'll tell you two things I think it has accomplished. The first thing is validation. And the validation 
in the end, actually, I think does have two audiences. The primary validation is that what they know about themselves is true. And that's a validation that they can kind of um, put out towards other people who doubt them, right? So that's that's a really important external oriented validation. But it also, I think, is internally validating um, because I think that there's, it, it's, I think, hard to hold on to identities that are marginalized. And it's hard to hold on to histories that are subjugated in different ways. And so, well, I don't think that genetics told Lemba people anything about who they were because they already knew it. I do think that it gave them a kind of validation to um, to keep that at the forefront of how they want it to be in the future. And so that leads me to kind of the second thing that I think genetics accomplished for them, which is uh, a fortitude to kind of carry forward the knowledge and ideals of generations that have now passed, uh, the generations that were really invested in uh, this particular uh, understanding of Lemba history. And it, it gives them a kind of, it's a shorthand, I think, to gather the strength to kind of bring those visions into the future. But, you know, the, the other part of the question, what has genetics accomplished for them, is also, I think, something I have to answer the negative, what it hasn't accomplished for them. I think that one of the things I explore in the book is uh, some of the different specific projects of recognition and access to rights like land rights, um, for example, like recognition of, of traditional leadership positions that aren't recognized by the state. The, the genetic study, uh, studies that were produced were kind of, in some cases, folded in uh, to these efforts. I think with the hope that because it was scientific evidence, um, it would kind of transform the outcome in a really profound way. And I don't know that it did that. And that's a kind of, it's an ambivalence here. Um, so I think on the one hand, in some of the really tangible kinds of things that genetics might have accomplished, I think it didn't, it failed in that regard. But I think the intangible things uh, were really powerful because I think it, it offered a new tool to reframe um, stories about belonging and stories about race and religion uh, that I think have been really powerful for Lemba people, for some Lemba people. Awesome. In the same regard, how is the post-apartheid South African state engaging now with the Lemba's uh, ancestry claims and the genetic evidence they've produced? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think becomes clear here is that, um, and I think many of your listeners probably already think this way, that the state isn't like a kind of monolithic thing, right? It's, it's, um, it's made up of a wide range of political projects, of political actors, uh, of, you know, different voices that are sometimes at odds with each other doing different things. Um, but that said, I think that post-apartheid South Africa is really invested as a state in uh, working towards an ideal where everyone is just a citizen 
everyone is just equally a person in South Africa um, with the same rights. Uh, and that shaped, of course, out of an apartheid history where uh, people were denied citizenship because of who they were. But I think what it has meant for Lemba people who are looking to kind of heal some of the violences of apartheid non-recognition that they faced uh, with a, a, a post-apartheid recognition of some sort, where that has been rhetorical, I think they've had some success. Uh, and that was the main example of that is that they were part of a reburial that happened um, at the Mapungubwe World Heritage Site. Um, and that was a, a 13th century uh, stratified kingdom where um, in the 1930s, uh, remains had been unearthed um, and then they had been stored and studied at University of Pretoria. And like in many other places, you know, they're kind of increasing movements to, um, to rebury these kinds of remains to return them to the people from whom they came. Uh, and, you know, in the name of dignity, in the name of kind of respect uh, for people and an awareness of um, the significance of, of spiritual realms, um, that these are not just things, these are ancestors. Um, and so Lemba people were part of a collaborative group claim for these remains. Um, and and I, I write about the, the process of how that happened in chapter five in the book, but this was immensely successful because uh, what it meant for them was that whereas they had always been sort of kind of pushed aside as not really belonging in one place or another, here they were um, fully incorporated uh, as having a legitimate claim as descendants uh, of this ancestral place um, along with, with other South Africans. And this was a kind of key moment where um, indigeneity became a relevant word and concept, and it became a really key moment where Lemba people felt recognized by the state. But like I said, it, it was, in large part, it was rhetorical compared to other kinds of ways that Lemba people were trying to engage the state through ancestry claims around um, land rights and around uh, recognition of traditional leadership. And so where there were really kind of tangible material outcomes that were being sought, the genetic ancestry did not um, make the critical difference that it was hoped that they, it might make. So those claims as yet haven't been successful. Interesting. Uh, now, in the book, uh, you often use the phrase lost tribe of Israel uh, to refer to the Lemba people. In your interaction with that community, do the Lemba see themselves as a lost tribe? And are there any pushbacks against the use of the phrase uh, and its implications? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, because so the, the way that I use lost tribe of Israel in the book uh, I don't take it on as, um, as a self-evident or non-critical 
concept. I use it only when I'm describing how other people have talked about Lemba people. Uh, and the reason for that is precisely because the Lemba people that I worked with don't see themselves as a lost tribe um, and really are uh, have varying degrees of negativity about that characterization. Um, I think the, the largest reason for this is because the idea, well, one, it's inaccurate. Like there's, there are stories about what lost tribes of Israel are and the oral history of Limba people doesn't actually match up with what those stories are. So there's, there's a, like a glossing um, that is removed from any kind of attempt uh, at representing what Lemba oral history actually is. Um, I think lost tribes of Israel more than anything are a colonial fantasy um, about you know, reducing the world to a particular uh, biblical imagery that centers some and marginalizes others. And, and so the concept of lost tribes of Israel that gets, that gets used, I think, within Jewish studies sometimes to describe any kind of group of Jews, uh, often Jews of color, Jews in Africa, uh, Jews in Asia, right? Anybody who, who is outside of a kind of the dominant narrative of who is a Jew and what is Jewish history. And so it's a kind of narrative that profoundly centers what is already centered and looks to what are sometimes also referred to as like far-flung Jewish communities uh, as always in reference to that center. And for Lemba people, uh, there's really no reason to accept that version of history um, and that framing. Uh, they really reject any kind of idea of um, that they should be marginal actors in somebody else's story. So that's where the pushback comes from. Uh, so you also elaborate on the concept of indigeneity in the book, especially in, in the fifth chapter, as a reclamation uh, of African strength and value. So indigeneity as a reclamation of African strength and value by the African South African state. With this reclamation uh, comes two types of claims, according to you. Uh, number one, claims on the state, and the second claim or second types of claims are claims of the state. So claims on the state and claims of the state. Could you elaborate on the differences between these two types of claims and how they relate to the Limbo community and their compound identity? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I think that this is shared in a lot of post-colonial contexts. Uh, but in South Africa, as a way to make a kind of a clean break with an apartheid past and try to work towards a reinvention 
um, of a legitimate state out of the kind of ashes of what's widely regarded as an illegitimate state. There's a lot of leaning on uh, the state now being African, um, whereas before it, it was not, right? That's, that's one of the distinctions that gets made, I think, around, um, around a transition to a democratic South Africa that includes everybody instead of a uh, South Africa for white people um, at the expense of black people. Uh, and so part of then kind of a resource, I would say, um, for finding a path for what that state should look like uh, is the idea that a post-apartheid South African state is an indigenous state. Um, it's a state that is infused with and built on indigenous ideas, African ideas, and in this case, indigenous and African end up being uh, synonymous with one another. And I mean, we can make all kinds of critiques about how much of that is, is uh, rhetoric and how much of that actually manifested. But the distinction here that I think is really important and is that, that kind of, what I'm talking about is a claim of the state to be an indigenous state. But the other way that indigeneity gets used globally is uh, as a way for minorities within a state to make claim on that state uh, for different kinds of rights and recognition um, in order to kind of uh, guarantee their survival, often against conditions of historical uh, genocide. Uh, and so what that means in South Africa is that indigeneity uh, is a way for marginalized groups of people to kind of assert their rights uh, and say to the, to the South African state, um, we cannot be just kind of uniformly lumped in mm -hmm. with everybody. We actually, there are particular historical conditions that mean that we need particular uh, recourse and particular kinds of rights in order to kind of strengthen our community uh, mm -hmm. in the face of decades, centuries of discrimination and decimation. Uh, and so that's, so for Lemba people, in a way, I think that both types, types of indigeneity are relevant for them because one thing that's been really important to people is that it's not just that they're Jews, it's that they're African Jews. And so the centering of Africa and what it means to be Jewish is a, is a really profound rewriting uh, of and talking back to Jewish studies and Jewish history. And so they're making a claim to Black Jewish indigeneity is about centering Africa and Jewish history. On the other hand, indigeneity becomes really relevant for Lemba people as a minority group in South Africa, uh, trying to get the state to give them forms of recognition uh, that can begin to address some of the ways in which they were marginalized in the colonial and apartheid eras. One thing that's a challenge for me in it was a challenge in writing the book and it's a challenge in talking about the book is how often the idea of the Lemba as a kind of um, reified uh, category mm -hmm. um, pops up 
and it's very difficult to uh, to break down. It's very difficult to not participate in that reification, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a weird and difficult thing, I think, uh, because anthropology, you know, has this long history of like studying ethnic groups all over the world, and you know, and then writing books about like this here is everything about this group right and that's so intensely not what this book is um and yet uh it ends up having to kind of play with that tradition a little bit because with a genetic ancestry study and with the kinds of claims that the Lemba people I worked with are making on the state there's a lot of reification of an ethnic group that ends up happening in the process. Um, And so that's a constant tension in the work and in talking about the work that I think you can hear really throughout this podcast. Uh, There are moments where it's sort of, um, there's a flattening of what's happening among different actors. Um, And I wanna just make it really clear that uh, on the one hand, there's a a lot of agreement among Lambo people who I worked with Mm -hmm. Um, about who they are, where they come from, um, what genetic ancestry is, what it should be used for, what it can do for them, right? So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of agreement, but that's the result of uh, really proactive political and uh, social organization, rather than a kind of self-evident thing of how ethnicity works. One of the things that I'm always interested in when I talk to you know, scholars, it's the process, the the research process, especially the uh, the field work. How was it uh, for you uh, being in South Africa, traveling throughout the country and interacting with the, the Lemba community? What kind of uh, difficulties uh, did you face, for instance, and how uh, were you able to overcome those? So the, the positives and the negatives, basically, of the fieldwork for this book. Yeah, the most profound positive of the fieldwork for this book is um they i mean i i was doing field work over years and so throughout that time it meant that my relationships with some families in particular became very close um and so i mean there's one family in particular that i i really regard as my family uh and i i think I believe that's mutual um and many other families who I also just feel like I've missed people really profoundly because it's been a few years since I've been able to be back. Um, But for me, those, those relationships are the, the kind of the biggest positive of the research. Um, And just the generosity that, that people showed in, uh, you know, trying to teach me things. Um, It's really remarkable how generous and welcoming people can be. Uh, so that is something that I really hold on to, um, not just for my research, but for, you know, my sense of the world, because we're kind of constantly faced with so much uh, kind of devastating news about um, mm-hmm. how, how, how people treat other people, how, how just, yeah, there's just, there's always so much, there's so much we're grappling with in this moment. 
and in moments that feel really dark, I kind of, I do hold on to um, the, the warmth and generosity of, that people showed towards me when there was really no reason to. Uh, they, there was, you know, there was no, they didn't have to do that. The things that were, I think, challenging, you know, I'd say the biggest thing for me that was challenging uh, was a lot of the places where I lived while doing field work were uh, quite remote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, there are places where like you would drive like an hour uh, to go to a grocery store. And that's actually no longer the case for many of these same places, um, different kind of developments have come in, but at the time it felt quite isolated. The other thing that was really challenging for me in doing my research is uh, I, um, I'm a transgender person and uh, I, I started research in 2004 and I finished the work for this project. I continued working on this project all the way up until I think 2018. Um, and so what that meant was that I was returning to places over and over again over years. And in that process, you know, I went from being a person in my 20s to a person in my 40s. And over that time, I also uh, like underwent medical transition. Um, and so what that meant was that my appearance was different. My voice was different. Um, and the, the, that actually for me was one of the positives because people were so welcoming uh, and wonderful about those changes. Um, but in the early years, it was, it was something that was really hard and scary for me because I didn't know going in uh, how people were going to um, make sense of what I was telling them about who I am. So you are currently working on another uh project, uh, a research project still related to DNA and genetics uh, in South Africa, but also related to carcerality. Would you like to share uh, a little bit about the project? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. So um, this project really came in many ways directly out of this first book because one of the things I was interested in the first book was this question of um, what does DNA do outside of labs? Uh, What, you know, what are its afterlives? What are the ways in which it can kind of do political work in the world? Um, And so genetic ancestry is a really fascinating and important way to get at that set of questions. And that's what I was doing in the first book. But what I, wanted to do for the second book is I wanted to think about, well, how do everyday people tend to encounter genetics? Like most people, although, I mean, with direct-to-consumer ancestry testing, a lot of people actually do have personal encounters with genetics in that regard, genetic ancestry. But beyond that, the most common way that people kind of come to know about genetics is uh, through policing. Um, and through the kind of compelled genetic sample that um, people have to give if they're arrested uh, mm-hmm. in some places. And I, what I wanted to understand, as, as I was finishing up the research for my first book, South Africa uh, was in the process of debating whether or not they should have a national forensic DNA database. Uh, and so to me, it was a kind of really important opportunity to see 
what shape do these debates take? Um, what outcomes would happen? And then in this case, they, they did pass legislation to have a national forensic DNA database. And so then the question becomes, um, well, what is that actually going to do? Uh, you know, and what is it specifically going to do around the question of policing? Um, because policing in post-apartheid South Africa is um, it's controversial, right? It's a, initially it was a site of kind of intense intervention uh, to see, you know, can, is it possible to transform South Africa's police into um, protective agents that support and protect human rights? instead of uh, kind of the agents of the apartheid state that put down political opposition, um, right? And that, that's a, that was a really core question in those early years. And what I think is really fascinating about DNA is the way that it can uh, lend a certain kind of professionalism and legitimacy to how people view and understand police. Um, and in that regard, I think it can be a kind of a way that carceral logics uh, become expanded and um, harder to contest. And so I'm really interested in mapping out how that has happened. And I'm, I'm interested in this part might go beyond the scope of what I'm actually able to do with this project. I'm interested to know what, what effect does that have um, on racialized communities and the ways that people are policed and, uh, you know, does it on the one hand have any effect in terms of the claims that its advocates make about what a DNA database can do? And those claims are that it can reduce crime, it can make people safer. Does it in fact do that? And if it doesn't, or even if it does, what else does it do? Way to read your next book <laughs> about national forensic DNA database and carcerality in South Africa. Um, in the meantime, I recommend uh, to my listeners to get uh, Genetic Afterlives. It's a very fascinating book, a really great read. That leads us to the last segment of our episode, Noah. So usually I finish uh, with my guests uh, the three fun questions. Number one, your top three dishes. Yeah, I I totally can't answer this question. So uh, here's how I'm <laughs> going to answer your question about top three dishes. There's top three things that I think dishes do for me. Mm. And then I'm going to associate them <laughs> with the thing. So the first one is like comfort and the idea of home. Mm -hmm. The second one is like experience and like expansion, expansion, like, you know, learning about the world. And then the third is nostalgia, which is kind of linked up to the first one, but, um, you know, brings with it like specific memories. So for me, the comfort and home food is ice cream. 
Okay, uh, ice, ice cream. Ice cream, yeah. Yeah, mm. all kinds of ice cream. That is like the, the one constant that was always part of my childhood. Um, it was always in our house. Uh, and that I returned to it again and again to feel grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, the kind of idea of experiencing the world and expanding one's uh, knowledge of things. Um, for me, that's it's not a specific food, but it's wherever I am. Um, trying local specials uh, or like if you're in a restaurant and there's a tasting menu like doing the tasting menu like just kind of like just seeing what it is that's good here right? okay so when you're in South Africa yeah what do you what's your number one go-to food or dish <laughs> I don't know what this is going to tell you about me but I feel like the thing that I most crave mm-hmm. when I'm not in South Africa and that I love returning to when I come back is Nando's and it's so ridiculous right because okay, Nando's, Nando's. But, but you know what it's Nando's good it's so good <laughs> it's so good and I think the reason that it's so that it uh it has this, like place for me mm. is that for much of the time I was doing field work it wasn't accessible I when I would go to the city and I would go and it's, it's like massive portion of chicken you know it just felt so luxurious and delicious <laughs> don't they have one i think they have one in south in um chicago I've yeah yeah there's one, one in dc Nando. also dc yeah. okay yeah okay. yeah there's they a don't they, the do they have it in new york i don't think there's one in new york i haven't i haven't but you know i mean i haven't been to new york city since before the pandemic started so who knows what okay. they have in new york right now <laughs> okay all right well that was a very scientific uh response to this question uh So number two, uh, top three novels. Yeah, so these three novels have the same central theme, I think, as the work that I'm interested in, my academic work. And that theme is this kind of different kinds of inheritances and and what we do with them. And so the first book um, is Kindred uh, by Octavia Butler. Um, the mm-hmm. second one is called Southland. It's by uh, Nina Revoir, mm-hmm. um, or I think it's Nina Revoyer. Nina Revoyer. You can edit that to get, so I say it correctly. Um, and the third one is Nervous Conditions by Tsitsi uh, Tenkaremba. Mm. Just cool, really, cool. all three are really powerful books about like complicated and difficult inheritances and how people navigate them. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then top three places you would like to visit. Yeah, I don't know. Places you haven't visited yet, but would like to very much uh, visit soon. You know, I really, really want to go to Senegal. Really? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that, I think it would be, uh, I, I feel like it's, uh, I don't really have a lot of experience with West Africa. Mm. Uh, and I feel like, I mean, I'd, I'd be a little bit at sea because I can't speak French. Um, you don't need French to, to go oh, yeah? to Senegal. You don't, no. You don't that's need good. French. That's, people, that's very good news. Yeah, no, you don't. I mean, most people don't speak French in Senegal, to be honest. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> only, the, only the educated elite, you know, people understand it. and stuff, yeah. But no, you don't need French to go there. Yeah, well, so that's one. I, okay. Another is I really want to go to Tokyo. Tokyo, Japan. Okay. Yeah, I, I, 
actually not even just Tokyo. I'd like to travel throughout Japan. I think it'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really, the way I think about the world is less about like a specific goal about a particular place. It's kind of like with the food. It's more about like seeing where things take me mm-hmm. uh, and being open to all those experiences. Like it's really about like um, jumping on opportunities as they arise and letting things happen in interesting okay. ways, letting the world unfold. I mean, I like that spirit. Yeah. Um, you still have one place left. Senegal, <laughs> Japan. <laughs> it has to be a place I've never been. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I've been to too many places. And so what ends up happening is like I have really good memories of places I love. Um, mm-hmm. But can we say for the third one, I feel like because I now live in upstate New York where it's really cold, mm. I want to go to warm places with nice beaches. That's very vague, but okay, I'll it's let so it slide. Vague, but, but it's so vague, but it's all of the places. <laughs> we'll give you that one. Yeah. And I want to go back to South Africa. I can't believe I haven't been there since 2019. Wow. 2018, actually. 2018. Was the last time I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Then the pandemic happened a couple of yeah. years later. And then yeah, and here we are. But it got stuck. Yeah. That's right. Awesome. All right. It was a pleasure, uh, Noah, to speak with you about your interesting and fascinating book, Genetic Afterlives. And I cannot wait to read your upcoming book on the forensic DNA database and carcerality in South Africa. So in the meantime, I recommend to all my listeners to get Noah's uh, first book. It's very good. You won't regret it. I hope you will have the opportunity to come back to the Africanist, especially when your second book is out to share more with with us. I would love that. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Awesome. All right. So, and on that note, I will give you a rendezvous uh, next time for another episode of The Africanist with another special guest. So in the meantime, stay safe and healthy. <laughs> Mwanlanya Mane jamu Afrika Moi sunyu na tange 